This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. All the members of the Board of Education for the Oakley Elementary School District in the San Francisco Bay Area resigned last month. They had been caught on a hot mic, not realizing the public could listen to what they were saying. One member used an obscenity when speaking about parents. Another implied that parents who wanted their kids back in school did not care about their children's education. All they wanted was a babysitting surface. Listen to what she had to say. <laughs> you know, they forget that there's real people on the other side of those, those letters that they're writing. Yes. We're real community members. We have kids or have known kids that have gone to these schools. Right. Have a vested interest in this process. And they don't know what we right. do behind the scenes. And it's really unfortunate exactly. that they, they want to pick on us because right. they want their babysitters back. Right. Right. Not surprisingly, the Oakley community was outraged. Within days, several thousand signatures had been gathered calling for their resignation. Meeny, meeny, tickle you farson. The writing was on the wall. The board was doomed. The entire board was gone. So what's the significance of this event? What do we make of it? Do, do school boards really care about the parents or are they responsive to other interests instead? To discuss these issues and just what needs to be done to make sure school boards are held accountable, I have with me today Michael Pogurski, an education economist at the Sinkfield Center for Applied Economic Research at St. Louis University. Thanks, Mike, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, Mike, are people being fair to the Oakley Union School Board? Weren't they just kidding around before a meeting began? And, and you know, maybe more of a fuss was made about this than it really should have been. Well, I think it's yet another lesson about the dangers of social media. <laughs> and, uh, and, and watch what you say when you're Zooming. <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, the, I, I think of <clears throat> from the taxpayer point of view, um, you know, the, the parents and taxpayers in that district, if, you know, are paying for services and if they're, if they want babysitting services <laughs> and, they're, and they're paying taxes <laughs> and uh, uh, salaries to, to get it. Okay. So, uh, you know, they're the consumers. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, clearly they they're the ones that are paying the bills, and uh, and uh, you know their their preferences should be respected by the uh, public by the trustees, as they're called in in California, the school board members, the trustees of the district. Well, the Oakley uh, School District uh, sent out a questionnaire to parents at about the same time as this event took place asking them to say, do you want hybrid instruction or do you want to just keep your kid at home the rest of the year? And about, it was about 50-50. When the parents responded, they were sort of split down the middle. So it, it may be a little bit uh, unfair to say that the board was not really responsive to the community. Uh, probably they were complaining about a few people who were, you know, making a fuss, but the reality was is that there wasn't a lot of agreement as to whether the school should open in Oakley. Uh, yeah, it's it's actually they I think they have nine schools and they that 
two are middle and the rest are uh, elementary, maybe they could, uh, you know, split down the middle, open some and do distance at others, uh, you know, to try to meet that uh, consumer demand or parental demand. Um, obviously, it was the disrespectful tone, I think. Uh, in a sense, this is, you could look at this, is the glass half empty or half full? On the one hand, you could look at this and say, well, how do school boards get elected who are so disrespectful of the uh, voters? On the other hand, they all resigned because they saw the writing on the wall. <laughs> Probably they would have all been tossed out of office under our very decentralized uh, uh, school governance model with, with you know, uh, 14,000 or so school districts and <clears throat> you know, local control. So it does, you know, it is interesting that they they just realized they could not govern after this event if, because there was a petition circulated that got 2,000 signatures on it that said, please resign, and, and they did. Now, they, they're also asking for the resignation of the governor of California. They got two petitions <laughs> You see, that it shows that it's the local control is much easier to affect. It's much easier to get rid of your school board than it is to get rid of your governor or senator or state board of uh, education member. So maybe there is a case here that democracy is 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 working, uh, but around the country, uh, school boards are not opening. And why do you think that's the case? Are they being responsive to parents or are they being responsive to other interests? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's America's uh, rather unique with our local control model. Uh, you know, we have extremely decentralized um, K-12 system. I mean, before World War II, we had over 100,000 school districts, and now there was consolidation. Now we're down to about 14,000. But still, that's a lot, right? And so um, we have this strong tradition of, of local control. Uh, and, and that gives um, economists look at this, and, and, and economists see markets everywhere. And one of the one of the ways economists think about all these the, these kinds of local governments, including school boards, is they call they call it Tibu competition after a, an economist named uh, forgot his first name, but Tibu that basically said it gives parents choice or gives consumers choice. If I if I want to live, you know, if I want uh, traditional instruction and smaller class sizes or whatever, I can live in this district. Uh, where they have higher taxes, property taxes, and maybe you know more of these amenities. Uh, but if I don't, I can go to this district. So it lets it lets parents sort. Um, on the other hand, though, you know this is a, a economist. You know it's also con a collective choice problem. You 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 have all these local school boards that have you know maybe six, seven, eight members. Typically, not in California, but typically they're elected in um, uh, um, in spring elections. So turnout is often very low in these spring elections. That's how it is in Missouri here. So the, the 
the literature says that it's maybe five to ten percent, and sometimes less than five percent. So in that, well, I think that's nationwide. Nationwide, you get about somewhere between five and ten percent for a school board election, uh, on average. Now there's some exceptions where it's a big race, but it, most of the time, hardly anybody votes. Yeah, and in that circumstance, then you get potentially have what again, what economists or or policy analysts call regulatory capture that that the if if the a small percent of the sort of a tradition or uh, independent taxpayers uh, are don't show up for the election then those uh teachers i mean obviously people who are employed by the school board <laughs> are their uh relatives their spouses have uh, a, a lot of leverage uh, potentially in those elections, and you, teacher unions have come to recognize this, and and have devoted you know considerable resources to try and influence local elections. And again, with that level of turnout, they can have a lot of clout, or they'd have much more clout than they would in uh, you know say a, a typically in a November election where many more people turn out. Well, in New Jersey, there's a school district where the president of the school board is also a union official, a teacher union official. So I think he lives in the district and I don't know if he's the president of this teacher's union and the president of the teachers of the school board at the same time, but he is a union official in the same school district communicating <laughs> with himself. Yeah, well, you can see that they're bargaining. Yeah. Yeah, so you can imagine collective bar. It'd be like that old Woody Allen movie. What was that, Take the Money and Run, where he uh, he had himself on the witness stand and he was cross-examining himself, running back and forth. Maybe that's how collective bargaining will work there, that he'll sort of sit on this side of the table and say, well, we can't afford higher salaries. And then you can run over to the other side of the table and say, but we demand higher salaries. I, yeah, I mean, clearly you, you, you've got a conflict of interest there where a, a, a teacher union official, uh, but, but it's not, I mean, that's sort of the, the, a highly salient example, but more common is you'll have someone whose, uh, you know, wife or husband is on the payroll. So they're clearly, there's a pecuniary impact. I for years, we had a, a professor who was on our local school board who uh, uh, was a professor at MU, but his wife was a, a teacher in Columbia Public Schools. And he was always saying, we need higher teacher salaries. And he was always comparing Columbia to some other district in suburban uh, St. Louis or Kansas City. Now, it may be the case that you could argue for higher salaries. I didn't think that they, the teachers were underpaid, but no one would step back and say, well, look, you, you clearly have a conflict of interest here. <laughs> Your wife is on the payroll. I mean, um, I, 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 I mentioned to you in a conversation, I, I sit on um, boards of some nonprofits. And uh, when you're on the board, I, I, I assume this is uh, um, comes out of these audits and so on, I have to swear up and down that, you know, not only is my wife not getting money from the not profit, but, you know, my um, third cousin twice removed has never gotten a penny. You know, you, you, you have to have no pecuniary connection 
to, to serve on the board of a not-for-profit. Yet here we have, it's just commonplace for, uh, uh, you know, school board members to have uh, spouses uh, on the payroll. Uh, and, and again, even within the context of government, you, the, the Public Service Commission regulates our lights and water and, and all of this in Missouri, but the members can't, there can't be a conflict of interest if you serve on the public, uh, excuse me, the Public Service Commission. You, you, you couldn't have a, a wife working for <laughs> Ameren UE or something like that, you know? So, so we just have sort of this relaxed norms about these things. And I think it's allowed interest groups um, to, to get a lot of influence on these local school boards. So is that your reform proposal? We should, we should pass state laws forbidding anybody to serve on a school board if they have a relative who's working for the school district. Well, I think that would be worth thinking about uh, because, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, clearly you have a pecuniary connection, right? I mean- it, yeah, But there's another version of this and that is sometimes the school board member herself or himself actually works for the school district down the street, you know, two feet yeah. over. So it, it, this can show up in many different forms. Or you get retired members. That's commonplace too. And, but they're still connected through the pension plan, right? So the district is still in effect, it's deferred compensation, but all of these pension plans are underwater. So <laughs> practically speaking, the money is going, going right from the taxpayer into their pocket uh, by way of the underfunded pension plan. So yeah, uh, there's just all these, this, uh, there isn't as much independence as would be desirable. Let's put it differently. The consumers may get sort of independent families that don't have these connections might not get their uh, interests as well represented. Well, the other thing that's now developed is the school boards are no longer held responsible to the local taxpayer in the way they once were. At one time, every school district had to raise their revenue from the local community, right. 80% of it, virtually all of it. That's yeah. fallen to about 40%. So that most of the money is coming from the state government, some is coming from the federal government. After the new COVID bill that just passed through, even more is going to be coming from the, the federal government. So the amount that's coming out of the local community is, is dropping. So really now the school board thinks more about how much state aid we're going to get than anything about, you know, what do we need to do to preserve our local tax base and what can we do to make sure the schools are operating very effectively so people want to live in this town. I, I agree with you. And I've, I've seen that over the years. You, it, when, when you have, um, the more of the local school spending that's financed either by the state or the federal government, it sort of has an, a narcotic effect on thinking about efficiency. Under the world where things are primarily, the, the schools are primarily paid by property taxes, sort of old cranks like you or me would show up at a school board meeting and say, does a football team really need AstroTurf, you know, for the, as opposed to grass or whatever? And often they would, the response are, are like teacher professional development. People, often you talk to people at the schools and then say, well, we, we're spending this money on this particular type of teacher professional development, and everyone would talk to you. You talk to you, say, "Well, it's not very good. It's it's 
but the state is paying for it or the federal government's paying for it. So <laughs> you wouldn't say that if it was local tax, tax dollars, right? Because if, if, but, but if it's someone else's money, you say, well, okay, it's not very good, but you know, it, it's the state's paying for it. And so you're right, moving away from moving to state or federal financing has this sort of uh, uh, inefficiency effect. Yeah. So some people are saying that, you know, the key to this is to shift school board elections so that they're at the same time as presidential elections, gubernatorial elections, so that a lot of people will automatically be at the polling booth at the time the school board is selected. But I actually think the Oakley School District was elected in yes. the November election. Is it, isn't that the case? Yes, it is. That was uh, I didn't realize that in California, I think it's true in all the districts, or at least most of the districts, they're, they're, they're held in November. Now, it could be <laughs> that, you know, uh, maybe they, were, they quickly resigned because they saw there would be penalties uh, downstream. So, but yeah, the, uh, in, it, it, I was surprised to see that in California, you do have uh, uh, school board elections held in November. I couldn't, if you don't mind, I'll bring up another issue that's come up around how these elections are held, or at least around governance. Often it's the case that, you know, these turnout in some of these school board elections is lowest in these urban districts. So, for example, this seems to be a fairly middle class district where the parents are heavily engaged, but in, in many of these urban districts, the turnout is exceptionally low for school board elections. And so, one idea out there to um, improve, attempt to improve governance is to have a mayoral control, is to, in effect, let the mayors be held accountable in major urban areas for um, selecting some or all of the school board or the superintendent. That was a case, for example, under uh, the, the second daily in Chicago that the uh, you got mayoral control over the district uh, passed by the legislature. And I think there's like 20 uh, metro, 20 cities where there's some influence here. Yeah, New York City is that way. Uh, Washington yeah. DC is that way. There's, there's quite a big cities have this uh, very often. And sometimes this does allow for uh, a school reform effort such as the one that happened under uh, 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 Bloomberg, uh, Mayor Bloomberg right. brought in uh, uh, Jeff uh, Joel Klein, who uh, you know made a huge effort to improve the New York City school. Um, and Arnie things, Duncan. That's how we got Arnie Duncan in Chicago too. So. so yeah, this is not a bad idea, but it's not taken. I mean, it's only about ten percent of all school districts have mayoral appointees. Ninety percent of them are these elected school boards, like you have in Oakley, California. Maybe we should just abolish school boards. What do you think of that? Um, well, as I said, the uh, uh, there, there's a there's an excellent book by uh, uh, two of your colleagues at Harvard. Uh, uh, Golden and Cats about uh, well, it has a whole. You know, it doesn't have a sexy title, "The Race Between Education and Technology," but and um, but it's an excellent uh, sort of uh, economic history of education in the U.S. And they called 
sort of this local control of virtue, at least initially. I, I used to have my students in my economics of ed class, I encourage, I didn't give them credit for this, but I encouraged them to all go see the movie with the fantastic John Ford movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance with, with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and Vera Miles. And, and Jimmy Stewart is of course a, a law, it's, so it takes place in a, a wild frontier town and, and Jimmy Stewart's a lawyer trying to kind of bring, you know, sort of uh, uh, rule of law to this, to this frontier town. But one of the first things they do or in that town or they, they, they draw Jimmy Stewart into doing is to start a school. And, and that's really, that, that's where we got our local control model because in, in the um, uh, territories, uh, if you wanted a school, you know, you couldn't wait for Washington DC or the state capital because there wasn't a state capital. If you wanted a school, you had to do it yourself. So we got this model of uh, local control which meant that small, you know, local communities could make a decision about how much of this public good they wanted. And if they really wanted it, they could, you know, dig into their pockets and, uh, and, and do it. And early on, we established a tradition of free public schooling. Um, so that was one of the virtues of the system is we got, uh, we got more education than a lot of other uh, developing countries at that stage in the, in the 19th century. Um, and there was a deep uh, connection and commitment on the part of these local communities to their schools. Um, I, I, I guess an economist say we, they were on their demand curve. If they wanted a lot of education, they reached into their pocket and they bought it. So it has that virtue. And I think that, you know, even in this Oakley case, if the parents get you know, unhappy, they can boot out the school board. And I think we've also seen this in terms of uh, a lot of education fads. Um, uh, parents get upset about things like whole language and uh, constructivist math instruction and so on and, and organize against it. Um, and so, so, you know, I think there's a virtue there in, in this local control in, in a sense the closer the closer you are to the decision-making, the more influence you can have. To, to take an, a local example, a group of parents here got very mad about this constructivist math about 10 years or 12 years ago. And they, you know, they ran two parents on the school board. They effectively pushed the superintendent out. And most important of all, they voted against a property tax increase for the schools, which they never do in Columbia, Missouri, but once, in the history of mankind, they voted against a, a property tax increase because they were showing their displeasure with this, um, you know, this uh, a constructivist math instruction. And I think they would have been very hard pressed to to do that if if it had been more centralized, say in Jeff City or in heaven forbid, in the U.S. Department of Ed setting standards. And by the way, I think this is where it's one way to understand the reaction against the common core national or sort of semi-nationalized curriculum is this sort of assertion for local control. Well, you know, dear to your heart is the pension question. And one of the things about these local school boards is they sell the future down the drain in order to uh, solve the immediate problems. And so we see these escalating 
pension plans that the school districts can't afford and medical benefit plans for retired employees that the school districts can't employ. Shouldn't we at least take those decisions out of the hands of the local school boards and shift them to a higher level of government, maybe the state government, so that uh, presumably you could bring more consideration to the policymaking process? Well, I think you've got a very good point there that these, these are called, effectively you have multi-employer plans and you have what's called a free rider problem that, um, for example, in Illinois, um, the, it was routine for school districts to, to jack up the pay of a teacher or an administrator in their last year or two on the job. And then that would translate into a higher pension for you know the next <laughs> 30 years or whatever. And, and that was very expensive. And, and every, every individual district had an incentive to do that because they weren't paying the full costs. Um, I, that, that kind of problem can be fixed at the state level in, in, through regulations in, 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 and has been. They, they capped this sort of thing in, in uh, Illinois. Um, so you, I agree with you that there's, there, you, there are certain things. Well, and really it's coming about because the pensions effectively were guaranteed by the state legislatures. And so the legislatures therefore would have to step in to prevent this kind of opportunistic behavior. Um, so yeah, I think there's obviously areas where the, the states, if it's state money involved or the state backdrop, then the legislature will have to, to regulate certain things. So tell me this, is the demand for opening the schools increasing to the point where we can count on the schools to open this coming fall? The local school board being the democratic institution that it is, it's not gonna keep those closed schools closed for still a longer period of time, are they? Well, this this is uh, uh, this is pretty striking the the conflict in in and this is heavily a, a major problem in uh, big cities um, where the teacher unions <laughs> and uh, particularly the AFT seems to have been really dug in their heels and <laughs> set conditions that are very difficult for districts to reach to to reopen. <clears throat> But I think it would be very, and, and I think it's cost them in terms of public support. Um, uh, but that said, I think it would be very hard uh, for teacher unions to uh, resist reopening schools by the fall because we're going to be, you know, if, if, we're, if President Biden says we're all going to have our shots by. <laughs> what is it, May 1st or something, the end of May. So the point is, I think that this, uh, there, there would be no excuse not to have uh, in-person instruction by the, uh, by the fall. And I think what we're gonna see is that this has been very costly for kids. I mean, um, I, I think when we finally start measuring um, achievement again in a, in a uh, sort of more uh, precise way, we're probably gonna see a widening of gaps because middle-class and upper middle-class parents were better able to cope with this than sort of uh, poor families. 
this is a challenging time and uh, our school system is challenged in ways that we never thought possible. So um, that incident in Oakley was a sobering one because it happens in the context when we're all so concerned about our, our schools. So thanks Mike for uh, thinking this over uh, and uh, joining me today on the education exchange. Well, let me close by saying that uh, uh, I, I look forward to every issue and every article in uh, Education Next. So uh, uh, I, 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 to the extent I'm, I have a, a sort of informed perspectives on this, I owe a lot to reading uh, and being kept up to date by Education Next. So keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Mike. I have been speaking with Michael Podgorski, Director of the Singfield Center for Applied Economic Research at St. Louis University. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.